Please join me in your Bibles uh, in the book of Isaiah, chapter 2. We're going to be reading verses 1 through 5 this morning. It's found, if you're using your pew Bibles, on page 567. And I'm going to give you a minute to turn there now so that we can enjoy God's Word read together. And before we hear God's word read and preached, let's pause again to ask for God's blessing on our time. Lord, we come to you, the king, the king of creation, the Lord of your church, and we recognize our own poverty and our own uh, disquietness in our souls. And so we ask now that through your merciful presence, you would enrich us and enliven us and bring us peace. Let your peace dwell in our hearts now through your spirit as we ask that through that same spirit you would illumine your word so that we would behold your face and hear your voice bringing us comfort and hope, and again, peace. So bless this time, and be honored in it. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Hear now God's holy word, Isaiah chapter 2. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass... In the latter days, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it, and many peoples shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for the peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, of all the passages that we're going to study in this Isaiah series, this is probably my favorite. Uh, you, you might need to forgive me if later on in the series I revise that uh, and come back and say, no, actually, this one's my favorite uh, because Isaiah has some really glorious verses, uh, but this one in chapter 2 is hard to beat. This profound vision of peace that we just read together, it it resonates to the very core of our being. It it is hardwired into every human person to long for unity and peace in relationships. I don't think any of us can dispute that. Everyone longs for peace. 
And if you are saturated with conflict, you're a person longing for peace in a world of conflict, then what you need is a captivating vision of peace that gives you hope for the future and also hope for the present, purpose for the present, something to to do, a vision that you can become a part of. It's like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech. One of the greatest speeches in American history. It galvanized an entire movement of people to hope for and work for racial justice and harmony. And if you listen to the speech, and I highly encourage you to listen to the speech at some point in time if you haven't. When you listen to the speech, you can hear the hope and electricity in the crowd. The shouts of affirmation. The amens from people who were weary of conflict, weary of oppression. As Dr. King envisioned a future where racially diverse children could feast together at the table of brotherhood, where people were judged not by the color of their skin but by the content of their character, the people, the crowd, found hope. And you can hear it in their voices. This was what they longed for, and the crowd found inspiration. Because the more that he talked, the more that they found out that their participation in this vision of peace mattered. They were a part of the story that he was telling them about. They could contribute meaningfully to this redemptive vision of peace even now. It was just too good for them to sit on the sidelines and miss out. People who were there in person recounted later on that they left with this renewed commitment to the movement. Many of them took vows to dedicate their lives to civil rights, even if it took decades, even if it took generations to realize. That is the profound power of a vision of peace, something to hope for and something to live for in the present. And that's what we find in Isaiah chapter 2. That's why I like it so much. Remember what we heard last week from chapter 1. The people are distant from God, oppressed by enemies, corrupt within. They are surrounded by war and rumors of war. They are a society marked by broken relationships. In a world of broken relationships going all the way back to Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, the Tower of Babel, and the fracturing of all human society. That's their situation. Conflict. It's all conflict. So imagine their joy and surprise and relief when God announces that the city of broken relationships is going to become a city of everlasting, enduring peace at the very center of a worldwide revival of reconciliation. To this conflict-weary people, God promised peace 
comprehensive peace. First, there's peace with God. The spiritual distance of chapter 1 melts away to increasing spiritual intimacy. Verses 2 and 3, the nations who had once been God's enemies are now moving toward God, yearning to be with God, to learn from God and walk in his paths. Verse 5, the Israelites, the formerly rebellious children of God, are now invited in verse 5 to walk in the light of the Lord, his powerful presence that radiates out life and light and holiness. To walk in the light of the Lord means that the people are at one with the Lord. They are committed to God's will, and they are enjoying his presence fully. The spiritual relationship that had been broken by sin was being repaired. There's peace with God. Then there's peace with each other. The chaotic interpersonal relationships that we heard about all through chapter 1 begin to be replaced by companionship. Verse 5, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord together. You remember Jacob from the Old Testament. He was the father of 12 jealous aggressive, divisive sons who eventually become, through God's mercies, the one people of God. So calling the people at this verse house of Jacob, it reminds them of their fundamental unity. It calls them back to be who they once were and who they can be. Come, let us walk is an invitation to enjoy God together. That's Israel. And then, possibly even more surprising, in verse 3, we hear that many peoples are beckoning to each other, saying, come, let us go to the Lord. A far cry from the rivalries of the ancient Near East, where you had Syria and Egypt and Assyria and Babylon all vying for world supremacy. They all hated each other. And so this is a a very different conversation. This is a conversation of grace. We see interpersonal peace instead of conflict. And finally, there's peace among the nations, where interpersonal peace between individuals becomes international peace between all of the nations. Verse 4, he shall judge between the nations. And she'll decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. This is a comprehensive dismantling of the global war machine, moving from violence all the way to paradise. Swords to plows. Spears to pruning hooks, weapons of war transformed into gardening implements, meaning that warriors will be turned into gardeners, like Adam and Eve were before sin came and ruined our relationship with the Lord, each other, and the world. See, in this redeemed future that Isaiah is prophesying about, the world 
will enjoy peace like we once had back in the Garden of Eden. Fully reconciled relationships between God, between each other, and between the nations as a whole. It is gorgeous. And it's guaranteed. This will happen. Verse 1, this is a prophetic vision that Isaiah had, that God himself had given to him. This future will certainly come to pass. Just listen to how many times the word shall appears in these first five verses. It's around 11 times in five short verses. You hear it at time after time. This shall, this shall, this shall. This is a 100% guaranteed future for God's people. Unending peace. But how is it going to get there? I think that's a live question in our minds. How is it going to move from this chaos all the way to world peace? I mean, this is the thing that everyone dreams of, but no one's actually able to achieve, right? Political leaders work for it. Musicians write songs about it. Artists draw pictures of it. Philosophers theorize about it, but no one can seem to actually make this happen. And so how is this broken world going to be restored to peace? Well, here's how. God's attractive, gracious, redeeming presence will bring peace. Global peace is something that the Lord himself will bring through his attractive, gracious, redeeming presence. Verse 2 the mountain of the house of God shall be established as the highest of the mountains, meaning that it becomes the spiritual center point of the entire world where God's presence dwells in all of its glory and majesty. And that presence will then purify his people of their sin and his transforming word will go out to change hearts and to teach righteousness, verse 3, for out of Zion, where the Lord lives, out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. As he takes up his, his uh, dwelling here, his residence here on earth, God will then settle all conflict. Verse 4, he shall judge, the Lord himself shall judge between nations. He shall decide disputes for many peoples. And the end result is a gorgeous global peace. All conflict, all oppression, all warfare will cease. How will peace take over the world? God's presence will bring peace. And I want you to notice how attractive God's presence is. It is it's something compelling. The mountain of the house of the Lord is lifted up. And what you see in this passage is that the nations are flowing uphill towards it. Language that's usually reserved for water. The nations are flowing uphill in this gravity-defying image of water going uphill like a river flowing backwards to its source. 
The Old, Old Testament commentator Alec Motyer calls this a supernatural magnetism. God's presence pulls the peoples towards himself, not for judgment, but for redemption. That's how peace comes to earth. God will make it happen. And that's one of the reasons why this text is so appropriate for Advent. In Advent, we wait. That's our, that's our primary posture in Advent. It's waiting. During Advent, we pause from our restless efforts to remember that God is our only hope. We cannot save ourselves. We are absolutely powerless on our own. We depend completely on the Lord for salvation. We depend completely on the Lord to bring us peace. And that leads us to another question. When? When will God bring peace? Verse 2 says that it will happen in the latter days. That's prophet speak for the eschatological age of God, the time at the end of time, the last days when God will fill the world with his glory. So what we see in Isaiah chapter 2 is an eschatological vision of heaven on earth that finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus brings God's peace to earth. We confessed this already this morning when we thought about how Jesus acts as our priest. He is our priest because he brings God's reconciliation to bear in our lives. Through Christ's redemptive work, we have justification, meaning that we are no longer guilty of our sins. We have propitiation, where God's wrath has been turned away because of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And we have sanctification because the contamination of our sin is washed away through his blood. And now, Romans 5.1, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let that wash over you for a minute. You have peace with the Lord in Christ. No longer can your guilty conscience condemn you because you're not at war with the Lord anymore. If, if you're in Christ, you have peace with him. You don't need to worry about how he sees you, because when he sees you, he sees Jesus' righteousness on you. And so you can rest easy. You are at peace with God through Jesus. And Jesus then gives us peace with each other. Ephesians chapter 2, the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile has been torn down, and both have been made one through the cross of Christ. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 2.14, he himself is our peace. And when he comes again, Jesus will establish international peace in the new Jerusalem that covers the entire world, this new heavens and the new earth that includes in it the Edenic tree of life, whose leaves are for the healing of the nations. Revelation 22.2. This is attractive, redeeming grace with a supernatural magnetism and a global scope 
Jesus says it himself in John 12, 32. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. So when will God bring peace? He's already started. Jesus has come into the world. The crucifixion has happened. Now we have the empty tomb to look forward to. The word has already gone out from Jerusalem through Jesus' 12 apostles, and now that same apostolic word goes out across the entire world through Jesus' church. So even now, Jesus is seeding the world with God's promised peace. As people convert and uphold Christian belief over nationalistic ties that divide. Here's an example for you. Some of you may remember the story because I've shared it before. Uh, it's such a, a beautiful story of a transnational reconciliation. One of my former pastors used to be a military officer. And uh, back when he was serving, it was not that long after the Cold War, tensions with Russia were still high. He was stationed overseas. And one evening, his crew encountered a Russian crew uh, that had also landed at that Air Force base. And they, they started interacting with each other, and it was a little tense. There wasn't much of a shared language, but they were able to communicate. And due to the sheer novelty of the experience, I'm sure you've been in situations like this before, uh, if you can't communicate that much, uh, but, but you're enjoying your time, the first thing you start to do is look for things that you can share. Uh, look for things that you can trade. And so they started to uh, pull out all these personal items and put them on the hood of one of the trucks that was there so that they could just start trading personal items with each other to commemorate and remember the experience. And in that pile of stuff, my pastor found a tiny Russian advent calendar, meaning that one of those guys was a Christian. And so he... he he grabbed that, and he started holding it up and waving his arms around, making a scene, asking, which one of you put this thing down? And eventually, one of the soldiers stepped forward, and my pastor grabbed his own cross necklace and held it up and pointed to it, saying, I I'm a Christian too. And when he held that necklace up and the soldier saw the cross, he broke into a huge grin and embraced him in a, a massive hug. Their shared Christian faith mattered more than their divided national citizenship and the conflict that was happening in the nations. Now, of course, that one encounter didn't end the tensions between the two countries, but it was a small taste of the eschatological international peace that Jesus promises to bring to us and that he is working out even now in this time between the times during our Advent waiting. What good news for conflict-weary people. Sin and division won't win the day. The angel's song is true. God's peace is coming into the world through Christ. So how can we live into that peace? 
How can we become a part of the story? Because that's what this text is after. This vision of peace is not merely something to hope for, although it certainly gives us hope for the future. No, it's also something to live for. This text was given to a society filled with corruption, where God's people were in conflict with each other and surrounded by conflict from the nations. This is an invitation to them and to all hearers like us this morning to become personally faithful to the Lord now, to make this story of peace become our own personal stories. That's the challenge. You can hear that challenge surface in verses 3 and 5. In verse 3, the Gentiles are saying to themselves, hey, come on, let us go to the house of the Lord together. In verse 5, it's Israel's turn. Verse 5, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Isaiah is basically saying, look, if the Gentiles, these Gentile warring nations, are eventually going to say to themselves, let's go together to join with God, then why wouldn't we, as God's people, why wouldn't we do that now? It's like, Two teammates playfully challenging each other at an athletic event. Did you see what that other team just did? Are you going to let them outdo you? No way. The encouragement is to step up to the plate, to persevere, to do even better. That's how athletes push each other towards greatness. And it's how Isaiah pushes us towards faithfulness. This is our future. The world will be enjoying peace. So what's stopping us from doing it now? Let's do this now. Live into the story of peace. Make it your story. Become a people of peace now. And here's how. Three things, three ways that you can make this story of peace your story this Advent season. The first is prayer. In this passage, all of the people who are streaming up to the mountain of God to be with the Lord, they are longing to experience God's presence, to bask in his light, which is something that we can do now through prayer. Prayer lets us experience God's peace. The great 1990s ska band, Five Iron Frenzy, puts it like this. This is the existential struggle that we all face. Man versus himself. Man versus machine. Man versus the world. Mankind versus me. The struggles go on. The wisdom I lack. The burdens keep piling up on my back. So hard to breathe. To take the next step. The mountain is high. I wait in the depths, yearning for grace and hoping for peace. Dear God, increase. Or as the great 4th century theologian St. Augustine wrote, Let my heart, this sea of restless waves, find peace in you, O God. Have you ever felt that way before? That the, the world is against you, and your heart is a sea of restless waves. 
If you've ever felt that way before, here's how to deal with it. These are not godless complaints. These are prayers. Prayers from across the centuries. Cries from the heart to feel God's comfort, settledness, rest, and peace. When God's people are anxious, embattled, oppressed, afraid, we can ask God to minister to us. And God is happy to settle our hearts. It's all throughout Scripture. Psalm 4 begins in turmoil. Answer me when I call, O God of my righteousness. You have given me relief when I was in distress. Be gracious to me now and hear my prayer. Seven verses later, the psalm concludes in peace. I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. God's presence in prayer brings confidence to his people. Philippians 4, verses 6 and 7, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This Advent season, when you feel the pressures of life descend on you, pray. Seek the Lord. Ask for Him to bring you peace. Through prayer, we experience God's peace. First, prayer. Second, evangelism. After you experience God's peace, share God's peace. That's evangelism. Sharing the peace of the Lord. The text invites us to share the gospel, which Acts 10.36 calls the good news of peace through Jesus Christ. I love that. What a way to talk about the gospel. The good news of peace through Jesus Christ. We, as God's people, must evangelize for two reasons. First, according to this passage, global peace only follows true faith in Christ. That's the flow of the action from verses 3 and 4. First, seek God. First, the nation's got to come to the Lord. Then they need to learn from God, and then only after that will they be able to lay down their arms and their weapons. And so if you care at all about interpersonal peace or international peace, and you should, you should care very much about those things, then you must care about evangelism. And that's not a knock on politics, okay? Uh, there, this, this is not uh, kind of denouncing peace-seeking global action. There's a place for reducing global conflict through political effort. But according to this passage, the baseline reality is that true peace only follows true faith. And so, evangelism. And a second reason why we, we must partake and participate in evangelism is that this passage does not promise universalism. Uh, this is one perspective 
on the end times, but it's not the only perspective that we see in the Bible. There's something else that's happening as well, which is going to be judgment. And there are plenty of verses about judgment surrounding these five passages. You can look earlier in chapter 1. You can look later in chapter 2 and see it there. This is not a universalistic passage. And so if you want your loved ones and your neighbors to know and experience God's peace, like we see it in this passage, then you need to share God's peace with them by sharing the gospel. John Calvin says that evidence of genuine faith includes seeking to draw in as many others as possible. Just like we see in this passage, many people being drawn to the Lord's presence. In Calvin's words, this is the normal way that God collects a church. He brings them together through personal invitation. That's what's happening in verses 3 and 5. People are saying to each other, people are inviting other people to come and find God. A people of peace will offer the gospel of peace to their friends, and to their family, and to their neighbors. And so, who can you share the gospel with? this Advent season? Who's the Lord bringing to your mind even now? And then a question that I asked just a minute ago, what's stopping you from sharing the gospel with them? Now maybe you have a name in mind or a face, someone that you would like to share the gospel with, but you don't know where to start. Well, good news. Advent is a perfect season for spiritual conversation. You can ask people, what are your normal holiday rituals and why? You can ask people, does this season have spiritual significance for you? You can even just say, would you like to come to our Christmas Eve service? Like Pastor Jimmy said earlier today, would you like to come to Christmas Eve uh, with me? And then I'll have you over for cocoa and Christmas cookies afterwards so that we can talk about it. I'm confident that everyone in here has someone that the Lord has put you in their lives for a reason to share the gospel with. And these people would probably welcome the opportunity to talk about spiritual things if asked. And if all of that sounds too daunting for you, then remember the gospel is attractive. There's an attractive power to everything that we're talking about. It is the story of God conquering sin through the gift of his son, Jesus Christ. Redeeming grace is magnetic. That's why you're here. You're here now because God has drawn you here. And if you are a Christian, then you have fallen in love with the gospel already. And so talking about the gospel is really just like talking about a restaurant that you love because you're hoping to persuade other people to go there, ideally with you. And if that's not enough, then God is an evangelistic God. He is the one who is ultimately drawing the people to himself. And so your evangelistic outreach 
does not have to be fancy. You don't have to be a pro-apologist. You just need to invite people to enjoy Jesus the way that you do. That's the kind of ordinary witness that I think people in our area find compelling. And God is happy to use. You can confidently share God's peace. So prayer, evangelism, third, reconciliation. The people who experience God's peace and share God's peace must practice God's peace. Matthew 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons and daughters of God. And they'll be called children of God because God the Father, God their Father, is a peacemaking God. Here, verse 4 again, He shall judge between the nations. He shall decide disputes for many peoples, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares, and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. That's what God intends to do here on earth. And so as his sons and daughters, why would we not occupy ourselves following him in that redemptive work even now. And so at your work, at your jobs, in your schools, in your neighborhoods, and your communities, in your homes, in your families, be reconcilers. Find the people who are being left out and bring them in. Confront injustice around you. Help the grieving to heal and help the angry to forgive as you yourselves seek to forgive. And just like evangelism, Advent is the perfect season for reconciliation. This is a time when all of us long for meaningful relationships with the people that we love. So help people find that. Press into those areas of pain. Ask how people are doing and help them find healing in the name of Christ, the true peacemaker. Writing in the late 300s, the pastor, renowned preacher, John Chrysostom said, this was the crucial work of the only begotten to help bring together things divided and to reconcile the alienated. That's what Jesus is up to, bringing things together that were divided, reconciling the alienated. And when we do that, it's one way that we can act just like him. It's a way that we can follow in the footsteps of our elder brother Jesus and our Lord and Savior So in your lives, bring together things divided. Reconcile the alienated. Experience peace. Share peace. Practice peace. And that then brings us back full circle because it drives us to prayer. The second that you try to become a reconciler, uh, you will immediately find out that the needs 
are just simply too big for you to bear on your own. You must have God's help. Just look at the world around us. The UN Secretary General has been quoted as saying that we are facing the highest number of violent conflicts around the world since World War II. And he said that in June of last year. And things have only gotten worse. Just last week, out on Capitol Hill, maybe some of you were there for this, multiple college presidents were on Capitol Hill testifying uh, about the challenges of campus life and campus conflict related to the war in Israel. And the president of Harvard said that it has become increasingly difficult to, quote, confront hate while preserving free expression. And then, here in Arlington, maybe some of you heard this, there was a major explosion that rocked the middle of the city, causing many Arlingtonians to wonder, is this 9-11 all over again? It's all conflict. Experiences of conflict that remind us of past conflict and make us worry about future conflict. And that doesn't even touch the conflict that often rages in our own hearts. And so what are we going to do when faced with all this conflict? We're going to do the only things that we can do. Pray. Share the gospel. Reconcile personally uh, with your own enemies and then help other people reconcile themselves and then pray some more. And as you do that, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus until he comes again. And then, when he comes again, it will be all peace, perfect peace on earth as it is in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for a profound vision of peace. Our hearts long for this. And so we say, as your word tells us to, we pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. Come back, Lord. Culminate your great work of redemption that's already begun. We praise you that the angels were right and that we can look forward to peace on earth even now. Peace with you. Thank you. Thank you for peace with each other, and thank you for a vision of peace that will eventually encompass the globe. We praise you for your justice. We praise you that you are not happy with conflict. We also praise you for your patience, because we know that you're delaying so that more can come into your kingdom. And so, Lord, in that patience and in your mercy and in your grace we still pray and cry out for you to return and we ask that you would make us peacemakers who can experience your peace and share it with the world we ask that you would help us to be reconcilers in our lives and that those around us who need reconciliation would 
would have an, an ally for that in us. Lord, I, I ask, please impress on our hearts people that we can share the gospel with. Impress on our hearts open doors for redemptive, reconciling conversations. And I pray that my brothers and sisters here would experience you guiding them this week into these relationships. Bless your word and bring it to fruition in our hearts. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.